Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Trugman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, my guest is Jen Jamula. Jen is an entrepreneur, coach, and performer whose work looks at communication in the digital age. She and frequent collaborator Allison Goldberg have helmed several artistic projects that have been featured on Good Morning America, Forbes, Wired, Vice, and more. The pair was featured on the cover of Time Out New York, which ranked them two of the top 10 funniest women in New York City. Drawing inspiration from her performance work, Jen leads corporate communications trainings and coaches speakers through her company, Gold Jam Creative. She is passionate about helping others gain confidence, find their authentic voices, and cultivate practices of empathy, respect, and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. She is a graduate of Yale University and a writing contributor to Forbes. And in this conversation, we explore a lot about her background. So she has a background in theater and performing arts. And as a public speaking coach, she brings that wonderful synthesis of different skills to make for a very unique blend of uh, different tools that people can use as speakers. And Jen is actually the first ever coach that I worked with. I reached out to her because I was in complete panic and terror at the prospect of having to give a presentation. Jen, in just a few sessions, was able to really help me settle into what it means to be an effective speaker and communicator. I think all of us would benefit from being able to communicate in front of uh, an audience, whether that audience is two people whether that audience is 10 people or whether it's a TED Talk. Any one of us can really benefit in our career and in our personal life from being a really strong communicator. We also explore what it means to be a leader. Jen is a really effective leader. And especially as a female entrepreneur, she talks about what challenges she has in terms of balancing all the different things that she wants to do in her life. She's very involved in multiple communities, and we talk about what it means to lead, especially in these challenging times that we're in today. So I really enjoyed this conversation, and let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with Jen Jamula. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very, very happy to be here, Mike. Yeah. So before we hit record, I, I was telling you of all the interviews I've done, I don't think that I've written down this many notes. So we have, we have so many different areas that would be really exciting to cover. And I actually wanted to start with you the same way I've been starting with almost every one of my guests. I want to know what you wanted to be when you grew up and what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up. <laughs> what did I want to be when I grew up? I wanted to be a newscaster, actually, if I can think about our first career day in fifth grade. 
Well, actually, you know, going way back, I think it was a teacher, but that kind of makes sense because my parents were public educators and I was just surrounded by school all the time. Even when I wasn't in school, I felt like, you know, lessons were being learned and it just, it, I felt like that was a big part of my life. So definitely wanted to be a teacher when I was a little kid. I had at my grandmother's house, um, an entire room devoted to, uh, pretending it was my classroom. And like, I had it all set up with my files and my chalkboard and all that. But then over time, yeah, I think newscaster was sort of the next thing. And then actress became sort of like in my young adult life, the thing that I wanted to be that then went into college. And then, yeah, in terms of the dinner table, So like I said, my parents were involved with our school district. My dad was my middle school principal and um, my mom was the superintendent of our school system. So that was really interesting growing up. It created all sorts of dynamics, like social dynamics, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. Um, like needing to fit in. I think, you know, one interesting thing, this is not dinner table conversation, but maybe it was sometimes, but I got to be really adept when I was like middle school age with my dad as my principal at being liked and going back and forth between different kinds of groups of people, um, the cool kids, the not cool kids, the athletes, the smart kids, the theater kids, whatever it was. And, you know, I was voted friendliest at that time. And sort of, I, I really took that on because there was a lot of pressure at that time to be liked. I think um, I remember I had, I, I faced like a little bit of ridicule, kind of like she only gets good grades because of her parents sort of thing. <laughs> but also as a part of that, you know, I really loved school and I loved learning growing up. So I don't know. I just felt that I had some like proving myself to do at that time, but yeah, dinner table was like, hearing my parents talking about very passionately about their jobs, which was interesting. And, you know, they both were in leadership positions um, with what they were doing. And so they really, in my memory, talked to my brother and I as if we had already had an understanding of like what they did. I remember they would use all sorts of acronyms for stuff that they were working on and like people's like professional names. And I was really intrigued by that at the dinner table growing up. I think it really like piqued an interest in me in what it meant to be a professional person and what it meant to be a leader and also just what it meant to be like passionate about the thing that you were doing. And that's something they always really encouraged in us. So yeah, I guess, you know, not, I can keep talking about this for a long time, but that sort of eventually made me want to pursue acting because that was something that I had always really loved. And it was a chance to not necessarily have to be liked by people. Like I could express different sides of myself when I was acting And I got involved in that in high school. And um, then, you know, that just sort of took off and became the first part of my professional life. Mm. Well, I want to spend a lot of time on the professional life because I I really admire and am a fan of your work. But one of the things that stood out to me from your explanation there was there was a point where it seemed like it was very important to be liked and you were bouncing around the different, you, you seemed like you could place yourself in any number of different groups of people. And then acting became, I was thinking as you were saying that acting might be an expression of wanting to be liked. And you actually ended by saying that acting was a way for you to be more authentically you and not care as much about being liked. And I'm, I'm wondering where that awareness came from. It's such a paradox with acting that you bring 
like all of yourself to it and you're drawing on your emotions and your memories and you are putting your physical body in front of an audience and it is extremely exposing yet at the same time you are taking on a facade and you know it's it's a little bit of both honestly that's what I kind of learned over time I'm no longer acting but like in the 15 years that I was involved with that like you it's this push and pull between being somebody else and being yourself and I think that that is really useful for life and I teach public speaking and presenting and storytelling and people get nervous in front of audiences because they feel exposed because they feel judged and um really like there is a certain amount of putting on an alter ego, putting on a particular face that can be tremendously helpful in those situations. And it's honestly something people have to learn how to do. And I think anybody should have acting training for that reason. But yeah, like there is a bit of taking on a character that can actually help you bring out more sides of yourself and feel more confident. And, um, but yeah, for me, it was a really interesting exploration of like different sides of my personality and, um, I think in particular, not just like not being liked, but also um, like being angry or being sad or just being the things that weren't as kind of socially acceptable in my growing up experience that I could play these really troubled characters sometimes. And um, I remember particularly in college, like there were a few that um, I'm just thinking of like the reviews that were written in the college newspaper about like, Jamula's portrayal of this like extremely troubled housewife and like how how I was able to really dig into that. Um, Anyway, um, it it was very cathartic for me personally. And I think, you know, some, a lot of actors are kind of drawn to it for that reason, but then ultimately what you want is for it to be cathartic for the audience. So the, the, um, like the focus has to go from you to an audience and thinking about, you know, how do I want to take them on a journey in this and make them feel something? And that sometimes requires you to like be a bit more fake, almost like to put on a little bit more of a facade and, and bring a little bit less of yourself to it sometimes. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I want to loosely connect the dots from that stage of your life when you were acting and, and pursuing that as a vocation. Like that's what you wanted to do with your life to where you are now with public speaking and, and leadership. You went to Yale University, if my memory serves me correctly. Yep. Yes. And you were pursuing acting. That's that's what you wanted to do. What did that look like? Like you did you graduate with a degree in theater acting? And did you pursue that professionally for a little bit? And how did you end up in public speaking and where you are? Yeah. Now? Yes. Um, so I was a theater studies major. I had really like two sides of myself. I had this extroverted actor person on stage. And then I I actually, when I first got to Yale, I really thought I was going to be an English major um, because I had this more introverted, loving to read and write side of myself as well. So I was torn for a little while on exactly what I wanted to do. But um, every summer I would go away in college to do some sort of acting program because Yale is amazing liberal arts um, school, but for undergraduate, there's no like really like um, vocationally oriented, like it's not really training to actually be an actor in the real world. It's more just like, here are these very high level concepts and us studying like the history of theater and all that. So I wanted to go away and get some like on the ground training with acting. So every summer I would go do something and 
I found some amazing programs out there. I went to France when I was 19 in the summer to do um, like a, a street theater program where we performed a Midsummer Night's Dream in a park. And I really loved that. That was like really physical theater. One summer I went to London and I did the British American Drama Academy. And we just like looked at Shakespeare the whole summer and performed that. Um, and then I did um, a program in upstate New York at Vassar as part of the powerhouse theater program, an internship there where we were performing Shakespeare outdoors for the summer. So anyway, that's when I really started to feel like, okay, this is something I want to do. I really enjoy this lifestyle of being an actor because you really do, you know, you're taking care of your mind, your body, your emotions. You're really like everything you do to come on stage. You really have to like be intentional in your life too. And I was like doing yoga and like doing all these things that were very mindful. And I really love the whole lifestyle. What I learned once I got to New York and graduated is a, I was like very ill prepared for the business of acting, which I think most actors can attest to. And then it's extremely hard as everybody hears and you know that, you know, there's constant rejection and you're really pounding the pavement and like up super early in the morning to like kind of see no results for your efforts um, for a long time before you tend to just see any sort of success. But what I also learned is that what I wanted to be doing was not just acting. I wanted to be involved in a lot of aspects of the production. So that took a lot of years for me to figure out. I think it was about when I was 26, so four years into being in New York, that I reconnected with a friend from college, Ali Goldberg, who then became my creative partner for about a decade. We didn't know one another while in school, but we had coffee one day in New York and we both realized like we both wanted to be creating theater together or she called them like weird projects. We didn't even know if it was theater at the time. We were like, we just want to do something that feels uh, like we're making it. So our first thing that we did together was starting, uh, we both had other jobs at the time, um, but like at night we would meet up and we would ride the subway together and we would interview people for a video blog that we were doing called, why are you on my train? <laughs> and this was like 2011, like blogs were still a thing then. Um, and it was kind of fun. We would just ask people like what they were up to. And I think that project was about she and I just like building our rapport together and, and we're very different. She's very like high energy, hyperactive. I'm like more of a grounding presence. Mm -hmm. We were building up our rapport and like getting to know what it was like to perform together. But a few years after that, we then started a live comedy show in New York called Blogologs where we um, took internet text and performed it on stage as different characters. And that, that was really like our biggest project. We had other shows beyond that web series, a podcast, that sort of thing. But um, that live show was our main event for a lot of years. And it was a really interesting exploration of communication in the time that we're living in and identity. We got to play so many different characters in the course of one show, everything from like an alien to like an animal to, you know, I got to play a lot of men, which was really cool. <laughs> and it was kind of like sketch comedy meets theater. We had full costumes and lighting and dancing and singing and all of that, but it was also a series of internet sketches basically. So um, I directed a bunch of those shows. We produced them together. Um, you know, we found the theaters, we did everything from the ground up. And it was really hard, but I really, really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, that that was sort of uh, how we did that. And sorry, this is, I'm just realizing now, yeah. I'm like, well, how did I get to where I am now? <laughs> so just briefly, we joined a tech co-working space in 2012. And um, it was because we, we had interns for the first time for the theater company we were, you know, a part of that we, we had created together. And um, we needed a place to rehearse anyway we had some tech entrepreneurs who would come see the shows and they got interested in us coaching them for pitches that they had coming up. And then Ali and I from there on the side began coaching in 2012-ish. Um, and then officially more like 2014, we began Gold Jam, my communications training company. 
And now throughout the last eight years, um, that's really been my main event is teaching communication skills and public speaking. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask just one thing about blog logs, actually, because I, I think it's such a it's a wonderful idea. And I I don't know exactly like if it was only if Yelp reviews or like Google reviews. I'm, I'm picturing like an angry old man writing, you know, like a one star review about the service that he got at a restaurant. Was yeah. it do you, was it that type of thing? And is there like is there one skit that you remember that was the, the most? I don't know, the funniest or the most memorable for you to act out? Yeah. So actually the, I think you mentioned, you know, reviews uh, being performed. We did a lot of that. One skit that comes to mind, no, just keep in mind, this was like, you know, 2012. This is a long time ago when this actually might've seemed a little bit more revolutionary. <laughs> uh, that's kind of a big word, but um we did the Yelp block tangos. So we took a series of bad Yelp reviews of the bar method, you know, like the workout, um, the bar mm -hmm. method. And um, we performed it like the cell block tango from Chicago, the musical, or if you've ever seen the Chicago, the musical, the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we were like, you know, all these like jailbirds basically like in bar class and we <laughs> performed and we did it to set to music with dancing. And then we each like took one of these abbreviated reviews and performed them. So that, that was just one creative take on something. For example, there's a website that was really a wealth of uh, a wealth of performance opportunities for us, which was isitnormal.com. I don't know if it still exists, but people would just go on there to ask if something was normal, and then all these people would respond what they thought. And um, there was one. I mean, you can just imagine the things that people would ask. There was one skit that I did. I ended up doing for years, and the first time I did it, I was like, "This is really weird. I don't think anybody's gonna like relate to this, and nobody's gonna like it." But it was, is it normal that I burn cockroaches? And it was like person talking about like in their New York City apartment when they get, when they have bugs, like they burn them. And I was like, this is so weird. But I ended up performing it like an Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs type like serial killer character. And it was like very well dressed and like refined, but then like would do this crazy thing. And um, that became one of our greatest hit sketches then throughout the years. So. <laughs> that gives you an idea of some of the weird stuff we would find perform advertisements social media like anything online <laughs> yeah awesome okay that thank you thank you for going there I, it was just a curiosity I, I wanted to know like one or two specific ones what I love most to, to bring it to today and you know I I worked with you what I love most about your work is that you bring all of that into a professional context and help people with everyday like myself everyday communication inhibitions or areas that you want to improve upon, you bring your ability to perform into uh, like, how, how can someone bring that into a dry technical speech, which is exactly what I came to you with. And how can you make it fun too? So I remember when I first reached out to you, it was, I can even feel it in my body right now, like what a terrifying uh, prospect that was to even get on the phone with you and say like, I have a presentation coming up, I'm really scared about it. And I, I didn't know where to turn. Like I, I felt really lost and uh, you did a great job of combining like, this could be fun and let's, let's uh, loosen this up a little bit with like holding that space for, Hey, it's okay to be scared. Like mm -hmm. everyone gets scared when they're presenting or most people do. Mm -hmm. So I, I really want to unpack what, what it's like to work with you and and uh, your process around public speaking. So yeah. 
And before, I know that that's a general way. So I wanted to focus, I want to frame this around a, a few things that, that have stuck with me through the years. You know, we worked together in 2018. Mm -hmm. One was your use of verbs mm -hmm. and how that's important in the way that we present about things. Visualization is another one. Mm -hmm. Alter egos yes. is a third. And then fourth is list building and, and the use of like different ways that we can use cadence or pausing. I just want that's like the general frame. We can take this in any direction now that you would like to go with. You know, if someone comes to you and is like, I, I want help with public speaking, I, or I have a big presentation coming up, what would it look like to start working with you? Yeah. So I think maybe what I'll start with is the last one that you mentioned, the list building, cadence, uh, pause taking. Um, so something I really learned through performing internet text, because the internet was our script our challenge with that with blog logs was to not change any of the words. And, you know, we always credited the people who wrote it and say, this is directly from the internet. But what our challenge really became was how do we use everything else at our disposal to tell a story with this? So, you know, it could be anything nonverbal, like our body language, our facial expressions, our tone of voice. And then we used all these creative choices like props and, and lights and all of that, dancing, music. And we also learned the value of silence in some of these sketches to inform the comedy in a lot of situations, but also just not even just comedy all the time. But if you take a pause, it gives people time to process something. There can be a meaningful, like something can happen in, in the space of silence, I learned. So this really translates to public speaking and presentation in a lot of ways. So you mentioned list building. List building, um, it's two things. So first of all, it's in the content that we wanna keep things generally to um, like a digestible list of things. And we often talk about three part lists, maybe five at the most, but definitely the three is ideal because that's sort of the best uh, amount of things that people can digest at one time. And then we probably had talked at that time too of um, a comedic rule of threes where with a list of three things that um, to make it sort of unexpected or, or potentially funny that you can establish an idea, you can build the idea in the second part of the list and then you can break the expectation in that third part by throwing some sort of curveball. And that particular concept can apply not just to what you're saying, but can, it can also apply to your slides that maybe you have a bullet point, another bullet that builds upon it, and then you drop in like a meme or a, or a GIF or something like that. So that's the comedic rule of threes too, that you can think about a list being a potentially a source of comedy. And so, and then also just, I really want to drive home with the cadence of your voice, the way that you're speaking and the pauses that you're taking that really is such an important part of, of our nonverbal communication when, when we're you know, talking with one another, especially when we get in work environments and we're presenting, I find that people snap into this like robotic way of speaking and of being, and I can even hear myself doing it a bit now, like when I'm explaining something, quote unquote, explaining yeah. um, on a podcast that I start to get into this sort of like rhythmic cadence which is fine. We all do it, but I want people to be more aware of it because it's really easy to tune out from after a while. So 
something that can really help with that. First of all, is just the general awareness of, do I tend to be monotonous? Do I have a sing-songy kind of voice where things go up and then they go down and then they go up and then they go down again? Do I drop the ends of my sentences off every single time and lose energy towards the end of the sentence? Do I have up talk where everything is a question, no matter what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm sure we covered all this at the time, but yeah. being aware of whatever your patterns are. Um, and then one great way to break out of it is the active verb concept that you mentioned, which is a little tricky to explain without actually trying it, but I will try my best. Essentially, we could also most- just, sorry to interrupt, but we can just go there too. We, we could just, a lot of this stuff we can, or maybe explain first and then we can put it all together in some sort of practice. Okay, great. Yeah. So the active verb concept is from the world of acting and it can absolutely be applied to presentations. And I actually think it can be applied to everyday conversations too. Most of the time, we think that we're in a room to explain something to other people, especially in a work context. The ideas we're there to inform, to tell, to explain. In acting, though, explain or inform or tell is like the death of any scene that you have with somebody. Um, you would never be doing that on stage because it's just so boring that nobody would pay attention. <laughs> so we have this idea of active verbs and their higher stakes uh, actions that you're doing when you're on stage. And um, I think the the two biggest ones that you might hear about, we would never do this in a word context, but it would be seduce or destroy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but when we are talking about in a word context, we might try something like uh, to welcome, for example. We could try to inspire with our voices. Um, we could then try to warn people just a little bit with the way that we're talking. I hope you can hear it just if you're listening right now, a little bit in my voice, but active verbs, the idea with them is that you keep them in mind as you're speaking and they would form, inform the tone of your voice, your body language, and your facial expressions. And when I was acting and had a script, we would apply these verbs to different parts of the script. I could even do it line by line really, but you would at least think about in the course of a scene, what am I here to do? Am I here to scare them? Am I here to motivate them? What am I here to do? Um, And then you can really break it down more minutely um, to your text. Like this particular line, I'm going to, um, you know, magnetize or whatever, you know, so many different verbs out there. So I find that this is a really great tool to allow people to have more dynamic delivery, to bring more um, parts of themselves into their delivery. It does feel very actory at first when you start to do it, which I'm sure, Mike, you might have experienced with yeah, me that yes. it, it, this is probably the scariest thing to try because it feels like so put on. I don't, what was your experience with it? It was, especially at the time, that it was at first very overwhelming for me because I had I had so many inhibitions around public speaking and just explaining something, just getting the words out was a, a huge barrier for me. I, I did not feel very safe doing that. So to bring in all of this other stuff at first felt very overwhelming. But as I alluded to a little bit, you, you made it really fun very quickly. So I, I felt I don't know this this would be an interesting separate thing to explore like how do you establish safety with people because i i didn't have the language for it at the time but i felt safe with you so i was able to go there and it it ended up being really fun i it's stuff that has stuck with me for a while i i don't i'm not consciously still using verbs but i'm very actively aware that my job isn't to tell people things and just to get them to hear the words I'm saying it is how the how of what I'm communicating is way more and the why 
are way more important than the what. And we spend so much time on the what. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for someone like me, when I started to, to work with you, it was at first that initial barrier of like, I'm not a theater person. Why is she doing all this stuff with me? It, <laughs> it very quickly went away into, this is actually a lot more fun than I thought. Like there was, there was one time we did the, what was it? The, the speech from any given Sunday. Al Pacino's oh, speech. Yeah. And that was, and we died, we broke it down line by line or even word by word. And when I should be speaking really slowly <laughs> and pausing for that dramatic booming effect. Mm -hmm. And maybe when I needed to speed up or when I should be a little more, uh, maybe if I was scared, I need to be speak a little quicker and my, my voice like this. Yeah. So yeah, that's like, that has really stuck with me as a, as a speaker throughout the years. That's awesome. One thing I wanted to say about the safety aspect, this isn't, it wasn't something that I like went into this doing very intentionally, but just something that I found worked over time and was true for myself as an actor too. I think it's really important for anybody who's gearing up to present anything uh, to rehearse in low stakes situations. Um, once you're in the higher stakes scenario of being faced with an audience, it's so easy for everything that you've worked on to go out the window. So we all know that we've all had that experience where you, like, you literally like just black out during the performance, you forgot what you were gonna say, you didn't do the 12 things you had planned to do. There's a real power in, in rehearsing. And you know, I for any performance, it would really help me to go over my lines. But um, I guess something else to say about that is like when, I'm, I was rehearsing or when I encouraged people to rehearse for things, I would also say to just be careful not to do it the same way every single time in a completely rote fashion that you want to challenge yourself um, because there will be things that will happen that you won't expect. You want to challenge yourself to, to do it in different ways. So like, I don't know if this can be applicable to anybody getting ready for a presentation, but when I was getting ready for performance, I would go over my lines, you know, when I was cooking dinner that night, or I would do it while I was exercising, like I would be sure to get the performance in at some point. And if I wasn't saying the lines out loud or like kind of hitting some of the marks in my head, um, I was like, really, you talked about visualizations earlier. Yeah. There's a real power in like the idea of um, even a process visualization that if you're not actually putting it in your body, you can almost create a muscle memory for something just by thinking of it um, alone. And a lot of people with um, this whole idea of visualization, they want to envision like the best case scenario, like what is my optimal presentation look like? But I would encourage you to think about more realistically, like what is the room going to look like? What's it going to feel like? What do you expect to see on people's faces in the moment? Um, what's something unexpected that could occur? Um, you know, how is this going to feel on your body? So yeah, I kind of went on a tangent with that a little bit, but the power of rehearsal, the power of low stakes, <laughs> doing it in that scenario first and kind of getting it in your mind. So you're ready to go. Um, and then something else you brought up and this sort of ties into visualization is alter egos. Yes. So yeah, so that has a lot to do with uh, the visualization. An alter ego is a depersonalization technique that you could use in a high stakes situation. So you feel like you're able to perform. And the great thing about it is when people use them, um, it's something you can sort of like put on and take off. And if you think about it, you're already doing this in work context, most likely that you would have a professional face that you would put on. Unfortunately, most people's work alter ego is to become incredibly boring, <laughs> right? They shut down like all self-expression. <laughs> 
I would say what I do with people is I say through the power of your imagination, let's now think about your best presenter self or your best like work communicator self. What does that person look like? And I really have them think about physicality, stance, gestures, like tone of voice, facial expressions. What does the voice sound like to you overall? What are the qualities that person has? And then the active verbs, like what are they actually doing to people? Are they teaching? Are they, um, are they, you know, making people laugh? Like what is the quality of that to you to be at your best? And um, from the visualization then of an alter ego, um, I start to get people to literally step into it, that we would close our eyes, think about it, and then start to actually take on some of that physicality. And that's when it starts to get interesting. And then, you know, kind of trying to present with that persona for a little while. And sometimes we name it because that can help to kind of make it feel like it's a separate thing from you. That being said, alter egos are definitely a part of you. It's just something you're kind of channeling that one part of you for a particular moment. So I'm trying, I wish I had like a really specific alter ego to share with you that I have, but I would say for me, my experience was throughout the years playing all these different characters became like an alter ego for me. I had like the man alter ego that I would take on, I had, you know, just like ways of channeling like feelings of confidence or, um, yeah, or vulnerability or any of that. So, yeah. yeah couple of comments and then I have a follow-up question. So yep. with regard to alter ego, I mean, the most famous one that comes to mind is Beyonce. She yeah. publicly speaks about Sasha Fierce. And I believe other famous actors, performers publicly speak about an alter ego or at the very least one name that in their life, they're, they might be really shy and private in one context. And as a, but they have a part of them that likes to perform and they... Mm -hmm really allow that part to become their alter ego that they step into. So mm -hmm. that was one component I want to name. Yeah, it I would say and a key with that is just, these are people who are performing in really high stakes scenarios. And I find that that's when people feel like they need it the most. So mm -hmm. that's why I believe it applies so well to presentations because that's when we're the most nervous about how people are perceiving us. So it almost creates sort of like a mask or a character that we can put on, but it, it, it is you, Yeah, <laughs> obviously. But um, give it a name and give it some qualities and, you know, think about like, what's one gesture that they do, for example. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And with visualizations, that was another thing that we worked on together where it's very popular to think about it going well and rehearsing it in your mind as a best case scenario. And one of the best things that we did was to see what could possibly go wrong. Like, let's just, what if it, what if your slide stops working? Like, how would that be for you? And that helped me actually feel at first more anxious, but then settled in and, and more comfortable with like, well, I'm ready for the worst case scenario. And it isn't, it isn't as bad as I would think it will be. So that was really helpful. That's something I took from acting too, just quickly. Like we would always say, what's the worst thing that could happen when I walk on stage? Cause I'd be so nervous about to walk out in front of a couple hundred people and like do something insane. And um, we would always just say like, the worst thing that could happen is like you die. <laughs> and that probably is not going to happen. So you're okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But no, it is helpful to like take it the worst case scenario route sometimes in those when you're nervous. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. It's very helpful. Yeah. With, with regard to alter ego, do you or do any of your clients ever get tripped up with the like, it, it might feel inauthentic or that they're not really being themselves? Like, is that something that you ever run into as an issue or challenge? That is the whole thing with presenting that is so weird. And what I would say to, to it, to them is 
the more we can practice, the more authentic it will feel. It's like, it's sort of like anything. I mean, I kind of equate it to like with needing to get confidence, for example, like you might need to put on a certain amount of pretending to be confident to actually start to feel confident. And with performing, like there are all these weird things that you have to do to make it look very natural to an audience actually, or um, to also just be, um, uh, to be taken in, in, in the best way possible. So you need to speak slowly enough and articulately enough that people understand what you're saying. You need to project your voice. You need to hold your body relatively still and make intentional gestures as you go. And that can feel incredibly limiting at first and very weird. And it's just something that with practice feels more natural over time. The active verbs at first can feel incredibly put on and you know you don't need to try every single active verb in the book but you want to try a few and there should be some that over time will start to feel more natural and start to resonate with you. And so I think it's the same thing with the alter ego that we need to find like what's going to feel right for you when you channel it and maybe it isn't something like big and dramatic maybe it's more just like a stance that you have or like a way that you feel in that moment um which is fine it doesn't need to be a big thing but over time it's going to start to feel more like yourself and easier to kind of put put on and take off so those were those were like the the meat and potatoes of of uh working with you in your public speaking and i also wanted to go over some of the tools and and warm-up exercises that you did because I remember those being really helpful and allowing me to be more embodied and present in the moment for all those things to, instead of it being this, like my mind is racing and how am I going to do all this? There was, we did like some breath work and we did a little bit of like body movement. And I, I would love to go through some of that with you as well. Yeah, sure. The power of a warm up, uh, you know, we just so often think to warm up for physical activities, but we don't think to warm up for speaking and, so anytime I would work with somebody, we always do some sort of warm up. It can really just get your mind in the right place. It can both calm you down and also make you feel more energized somehow at the same time. So um, I think it's really important. You know, we tend to sit in front of computers all day too, and we're not using our voices intentionally. And we need to, especially for presentation, like have all of these parts of ourselves a little warmed up because the goal is that you're going to connect with an audience and that does require a little bit more energy given to your body and your voice and all these things. So we did some really simple ones together, I'm sure. And you don't need to like do anything really over the top, but um, I would say just like a simple body scan head to toe. Like I usually have people do little neck rolls and shoulder rolls and they shake out the energy from their bodies. I would usually have them like hang their torso forward and um, release some tension and then roll back up um, and then maybe expand their body quite a bit and reach out as largely as they can with their bodies um, just to kind of make them feel more present and get the blood flowing in their body. Um, and then Vocally, um, I usually have people exercise different parts of their voice. So we get into low voice, medium voice, or mid-range, and then the higher voice, um, just so you feel like you're able to access those parts of your voice if you want to. And it doesn't feel so weird to be expressive <laughs> um, when you're speaking. Yeah, so those are probably sort of like the more high level stuff that we would do, but always I would say do a vocal warm up, do a physical warm up. And then if you need to do something mental, do that. Um, you could do a process visualization, which we had mentioned about envisioning the way it could go in a scenario where not everything goes just as you had planned. Um, but you could also do an anxiety reappraisal, um, which is a technique where 
you're reframing some sort of fear that you have about what you're about to do as something that you could actually get excited about. And it's just this little mindset shift. I would do it when I was performing. You know, if I'm scared that I'm about to be judged for what I'm doing, I might think about actually, this is an opportunity for me to not know what's going to happen next and to keep going anyway and to see, you know, how that is. And that's exciting. So, um, yeah, something around mindset too can definitely be helpful. Yeah. And an, another thing that you spoke to me about that is not, you know, it's funny, I, I'm realizing that a lot of my work now as a coach overlaps with what you do as a coach and facilitator. One of the things is the breath too. Like that's always a big anchor. And, and you showed me the four, seven, eight breath, which has, I've heard uh, popularized now in, in many other contexts, but the breath is always, you know, on, in addition to all the other wonderful tools that you just named the four, seven, eight breath, which is inhale for four, hold it for seven and exhale slowly for eight. I think you even had me exhale with like a, like a sound to slow it down. Like that really stabilizes your physiology as well. Like it, it really brings anchors you in the present moment. Totally. Your voice, anyone's voice will be so um, informed by the quality of your breath. You need breath support and, you know, not to get like technical about that, but you just simply need to be in touch with your breath to be able to project your voice. So, um, and also, like you said, just this overfeel overwhelming feeling of being grounded when you're in touch with the breath is really important when you're getting on stage that you want to feel like you're centered. Um, and for seven day breathing with the exhale, I think we exhaled on a sound sort of like you're shushing someone. Um, but my thought with that is that we tend, especially when we're nervous to take in a lot of breath. Um, and you can almost envision somebody kind of like breathing up into their chest, into their shoulders and like breathe, like taking in breath that way, but we don't give the full weight to the exhale in those situations when we're anxious. So the shh was just kind of getting it all out. <laughs> so I'm now I'm really curious how you bring that into a, a workshop or organizational type of environment. I, I, I imagine there would be a lot of resistance, like even one-on-one, -on -one, it could be tough to get yourself there, but in a group of people where, and you already spoke about this, like a lot of times our alter egos in a professional context or a work environment are to shut down or become more boring or to, we want to show as the least amount of ourselves as possible. And yet, here, here you are showing up and getting people to be as expressive as possible and to bring all the different, you know, the goofy sides of themselves. And I'm wondering in a work environment with a group of people, how do you, is that a tough, I imagine it's a tough barrier to get through and, and how do you do that? Well, luckily, I think it's getting to be more acceptable that we would be that people can be more expressive in work environments. I think we're inviting that more, which is great. I'm seeing, you know, as I'm teaching groups, but yes, so asking somebody to step outside of their comfort zone like this in front of colleagues can be challenging, but I haven't faced, so when I feel like I face resistance, it honestly usually tends to be somebody who is thinking a lot about what I'm saying. Maybe they're not fully embracing it yet, or, you know, they're maybe a little skeptical, but they're usually the people who take the most away from the session. I don't know if, you know, you found this in your own work sometimes where, like at the end of the workshop, it's always the person who seemed the most resistance, the resistant that then comes up and has like a bunch of questions or talks about how valuable it wasn't like what they could take away from it. So I don't know, even when I've experienced resistance, people still tend to be engaged in some way, but 
I always begin the sessions with some sort of icebreaker activity for everybody to do together. And I let them know this will be interactive. We will be doing things that are going to be maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Um, we're all in this together. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll play some sort of like improv based game together. We'll probably do a vocal and a physical warm up if it's anything related to speaking. And then, yeah, I, I wish I had a better answer for your question than, wow. I don't know. It's something about like, I don't know. It's just the process of at the beginning of the session, getting people on board. And then I find that people just tend to kind of want to go for it. And yeah. it's not a perfect session every time. Sometimes groups are more engaged than other groups. And that usually I find tends to have a lot to do with the culture that's already in place at the company with how expressive they're, you know, feel, they feel like they can be with one another already before I even get there. Uh -huh. But then at the end of like a public speaking session, everybody does get a chance to present. So there is sort of like a little bit of good pressure there, I think, like good nerves around, you know what, I have to be engaged in this because I'm going to have to show that I took something away from this in front of my yeah. colleagues. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Are, are any of the icebreakers that you do coming to mind? I, I actually remember one from my first job. It was a really simple one. It was just like go around the room, shake everyone's hand and say good morning for like 30 seconds. And just like that alone, the energy of the room completely changes. What, what were some that you offer in your workshops? Yeah, sometimes we'll do like a small group timed activity about like finding the most unique thing that we have in common with one another. That's been good with groups um, more recently where people might be working together who had never met and, you know, in person before, never have even been virtually together before. Um, we do sometimes a physical one called jump in, jump out, which is um, sort of challenging our brain. We're saying one thing, but doing another with our body. And we're all kind of doing it at the same time. We have one where we activate our curiosity around the, with the room that we're in. This has been in the virtual environment when, when people are at their computers, we actually encourage them to get up and start walking around the room and seeing things with fresh eyes. We lead them sort of like through this, um, through, through, it's not a visualization, but th through a bunch of talking points that gets them more and more curious as we go. And then we come back together and we start to share about like things that we observed in, in the space around us and how, and what that, what it felt like to have fresh eyes. So yeah, those are just a few. Uh -huh. Well, now I'm interested in segueing more into your journey as an entrepreneur. So like the business side of this and how that has informed you becoming I think leadership has always been important to you. It's, I mean, you've already named that, but how th that seems that it seems like it's more top of mind lately, especially as a, a woman business owner, uh, how, how that informs your work. So let's start with like the idea of doing that. And you're, you're really gifted as a, as a facilitator and coach, but what was it like to build that into a, a business, especially with, uh, with Allie, your co-founder, and now that you, I think you have a few employees, like what, what's that journey been like for you in, from going from a passion for yourself into uh, this is really the way that I'm making a living doing this? This is such a good question that I think I'm still like, I'm still like thinking about for myself. I, I don't know that I have the perfectly crafted answer for it yet, but there are things that I can say about my journey a little bit that sort of informed where I am now. So you mentioned the idea of leadership, which, you know, I spoke at the beginning about my parents and being sort of inspired by like the leadership role that they had in their jobs and how they were really making positive change. And they felt so passionately about what they did. 
And that always really stuck with me. And I have to say that when I was acting, I really did feel disempowered um, as many actors do, I think just with the rejection and being like one of many, many, many people vying for the same job all the time. And I had so much uncertainty when I was acting about my place in the world really. So in my twenties, I really did start to think about like, what, what, what is leadership? What does that mean for me? Even if it's just self-leadership, like how, how will I feel good about what it is that I'm doing? And I read a book at the time that I I'll mention, but to be honest, I haven't read it since I was 25. So I don't know if it's any good anymore, but for my 25 year old self, this book really struck a chord and it was called finding inner courage. And it was by Mark Nepo. I think you say his last name, N-E-P-O. And it was interesting to me in the book, he laid out the, it was the etymology of the word courage. And he said, it was like core, like your core, your heart, like standing by your own core. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that really spoke to me at the time where I was like, okay, so I want to like be myself the most that I can be in the world and like express my beliefs in the way that I want. I, that's what really then led me to want to be creating my own theater work. And then as I got into teaching, teaching just really naturally became very naturally for me because of everything I explained about my background, wanting to be a teacher when I was a little kid and my parents, you know, being in education, all that stuff. So teaching just always felt really, really natural and to blend it with this passion I had for performing. So when, when I started doing what I'm doing now with Gold Jam, I, I just loved doing it. Now I didn't have business savvy, <laughs> but I was really lucky as I had said at that time to be part of this tech co-working space surrounded by all of these tech startups in different uh, like aspects of tech, you know, ed tech, fintech, like all these different things. They were all, they were all different and people gave us a lot of good business, business advice at that time. Like I learned all about SEO <laughs> from somebody wow. and we like, you know, made a website and like optimized it and did all that. And we didn't go through like any uh, sort of like formal, like accelerator process or anything like that, like no nothing like that, but we were just taking in any information anybody could give us about how to run a business. And, you know, we did the things like contact the small business services in the city. And we became like an official, like women owned business in New York through like an application process that we did. But I have to say that it does continue to be a challenge to know how to run a small business. And I don't know if all small business owners feel this way, but like, it really is a daily learning experience. I always feel like there's something where I'm like, why didn't I know how to do that? This yeah. is something I now need to research. <laughs> yeah. And um, having a partner for so long with Ali, you know, running the business together, I think gave me a lot of comfort. I don't know that I would have started Gold Jam without her. I definitely wouldn't have done it it gave me a comfort in that if I didn't know something I could ask her. And if she didn't, if she didn't know, she'd ask me, but if we both didn't know, we could at least research it together. And it didn't feel so lonely. I didn't feel so helpless in the whole process. So I was really lucky to have her with me to build the business. And now recently um, she's kind of stepped back from her more operational role and I'm guiding the business more from, from a business perspective and, and trying to grow it. And I just once more feel a little bit like, how do I need to stand by my core in this moment? And mm -hmm. now on my, on my own as a leader to like, really to be confident enough in myself and the things that I don't know to keep going and not get too held up. And, um, 
to also just continue to believe in my passions and grow it, you know, in terms of, you know, the things that really, that I believe in and the audiences that I want to reach and all of that. So a lot of big questions I'm asking myself right now, but yeah, that's, that's sort of been the leadership journey. Well, it does seem in line with a lot of what I've heard from most small business owners is that we, a lot of times we get into business from a place of passion and knowing things. And a lot of the best leaders that I follow just are living into questions all the time. <laughs> and it's never, I, there's this weird thing that happens where the more that we know, the more that we're curious about all the things that we don't know. And then mm-hmm. we're, we start to be more comfortable with inviting that in instead of hiding from it and, and playing it safe and just sticking to what we know. And right. a big part of my unlearning has been, you know, I, there's still a part of me that holds out the hope that there's going to be this one day where I have just figured out everything and there's no, <laughs> no curveballs being thrown my way. And yeah, I don't know that I don't think that's ever a useful way to look at the world, especially as a business owner, where inherent in every day is uncertainty and who knows, like there's so much that's outside of our control. It's hard enough to figure out ourselves, let alone a team of people or the way that everything, you know, systems work. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. My, my reflection back to that is like, it's never it's a very fluid thing. And the more that we know what challenges to look for or what, if if we can identify what the problem is, that's like more important than having the right answer anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I often think and feel like if I really took to heart every single day, like really thought about all the things that I didn't know and needed to know and needed to do, (laughs) I would be too overwhelmed to act. Yes. Yeah. So it's kind of too like, yeah, what can I put at bay at this moment? And just kind of, yeah, just even sometimes when you're going at it on your own, just even to know what to focus on, on any particular day to make the most impact, it requires a lot of like self-discipline and a lot of reminders, like to be able to step back and be like, what is most important in this moment, even though you need to deal with X, Y, and Z. And one of them is like a tax issue. like. What you need to focus on is the outreach that you have to do with your relationships and these, you know, people that you're working with right now. And like, it's just, it's a lot of mental trickery for yourself Uh to kind of keep going. And also like to know when to act, to know when to pull back. Like it's just, it's a lot of gauging of, you know, what you should do and what you shouldn't do on any particular day. (laughs) Do you have any, this probably isn't where you're expecting it to go, but do you, do you have any physiological markers for when you know what, one of the, let me, let me frame this a little differently. One of the explorations I've done in the last year has been to become more attuned to my body. And so I can, I can kind of sense physiologically when I'm overwhelmed and when that, when it is time to take a step back. And when I have a, a spark in me, that's like a, a curiosity that wants to be ignited in some way, that would be a good indication to take a step forward or I know I'm now able to make the distinction between of a contraction and fear where like, "Mm, this isn't, you know, this isn't the right fit for me versus a fear that's inviting me to take a step into the unknown or to learn something new. And I'm, I'm just curious how that, how does that show up as a business owner for you? Oh, such a good question. And actually I have to be honest, it's not something, it's something I would like to be more aware of for myself. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I think 
I know when I'm operating out of fear that I tend to focus on like the easy things during the day. And I like, I have a tendency to want to knock out all of like the little easy tasks if I'm like putting off something that I don't want to do. <laughs> so there's definitely that where like, I can see where my attention's going. And then I sort of realize, oh, there must be something bigger here that I need to deal with that I'm sort of putting at bay. So there's that. Um, I don't, I don't know, to be honest, I, what resonates with me, as you're saying is the sense of contraction or expansion in the things that I'm doing. And I think I definitely have that overall. I overwhelmingly have a huge feeling of expansion when I'm either teaching or when I'm dealing with clients, people that I work with directly, like on any sort of call, when I'm trying to help them assess the issues that they're having and determine what's the best way to help them. That's when I feel really like attuned and open and all of that. But yeah, I don't know. I would say with a lot of the nitty gritty business stuff, I tend to feel generally contracted, which, yes. <laughs> but hopefully, I mean, what I'm working towards and my company is sort of in a transition right now. We did have an employee for a while. We facilitators work with us, but right now I don't have an employee to support me, but eventually I will again. I just, I'm going to, I think there are certain things that I would like to delegate at some point to people who do feel expanded by those things. Yeah. <laughs> and that would be a goal of mine. <laughs> uh huh. Awesome. Yeah. That, that is one of the places I was going to go is, uh, yeah, uh, yeah th there's a part of me that's curious about how do you, how you get yourself through the, t like, I have a, a big resistance, even though I work in accounting, you, you might find it surprising to, uh, to learn that I have a resistance to all of the, like, the tax side of things and the, like, you know, doing the behind the scenes, I'm more energized by like having conversation like this or client outreach or doing a workshop. And I have a large resistance to doing the legwork that actually is necessary for the business to carry on. Right. So yeah, one, I guess one answer to that is just to outsource it. And yeah. I, another, I'm, I'm tempted to not spend too much time on this because I want to talk leadership <laughs> with you, but I'm interested in, in two things. One is what gets you through that stuff when you, you know, it needs to be done and you're in contraction and you can make up a lot of stories about how, you know, Oh, like I, I, if I'm, you know, if I'm a business owner and I'm doing what I do best, then I can give this to someone else to do best, but that's not the case right now. Like you're at the end of the day, you're doing it. So what gets you through it? And mm -hmm. then as a somewhat unrelated question, how did you know that you and Allie would be good business partners? And what did that, uh, <laughs> yeah, what did that look like when you guys came together? Yeah. Okay. So getting through it, first of all, before I like lose this train of thought for myself, um, I do have to say, I love a good spreadsheet. Like I, and I'm sure, I think most people, like when you're doing your own thing too, like when you see all of the information come together in one place and you can start to like deduce things from that, it gets really exciting. Uh -huh. So I do try to remind myself of the end product. I try to remind myself that while I'm not enjoying this particular task at the moment, this is to be involved in all aspects of the thing I'm doing to have it be that holistic is actually amazing because at some point when I do pass this off to other people, it's going to still be my own. Like I, I, it's important to have a hand in all those things. So even if I hate it, there's that. And I also do remind myself that I'm still learning and it's really important that I learn how to do the things that I hate to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I just think back to school and all the stuff that I hated to do when I was back in school and how well that turned out. I mean, you, you need to get that education at some point and yeah, I'm, I would rather be learning now than to feel like I had it all figured out. So there's that. And then with Allie, we, 
didn't necessarily know that we would be great business partners. I think we learned first that we were really good creative partners. We were very much on the same page from the moment that we decided to work together, which was basically the first day that we like connected. We met for a coffee in 2011 and we ended up spending half the day together just talking about like all the projects that we wanted to create and how we were feeling at that time and how we were really similar places in our lives. And like I said, personality wise, we're pretty different. She says what she thinks. She's very much like the engine in any situation, whereas I'm much more the brakes. You know, she's just so funny and <laughs> outgoing. And I'm a bit more reserved typically in conversations. Um, so I don't know. I think I just had this sense that we could complement one another really well. And we both really wanted the same things. And then we luckily got to test that out over a few years with a number of different projects before we actually started a business together. And then also just to mention, I, I had this sort of archetype in my head of a partnership from my uncle, my mom's brother, um, who was a business owner and did very well for himself. And he had a partner and his personality was very much like mine. And his partners was very much like Ali's and they were Mm. extremely successful together and kind of growing up, I had always admired him. Um, and so I, yeah, there was just something about it that maybe reminded me of that as well. The story that I'm making up about that is there's an alignment on we'll call it vision or something Mm -hmm. in in your heart that wants to be expressed and a completely different ways of getting to that vision or or ways of moving throughout the world that that seems to be a good combination for any business partner so absolutely also just to mention like trust I know that's something Mm -hmm. that needs to be built up over time but she and I I just would trust her 100% with anything I've learned through many different experiences that we had together that, you know, I think we just built that trust over time and, and knew that we could be there for one another. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, now I want to talk about leadership with you and uh, how, that, how that shows up in your work, how that informs uh, your writing, even your creative process the type of person that you want to be and the type of person that you want to inspire others to be. How, how is that informing the way that you're moving through the world right now? Well, I think you definitely brought up a big point about this, about the most interesting leaders that we know tend to be living into the questions of things. And I definitely would love to be setting an example for anyone who's interested in having the example set um, of, vulnerability of transparency of openness i um i really have a a strong background in creative collaboration i was sort of thinking about this recently um that it well i'll talk about how it's informed my my business self but um you know throughout the years with the shows that we were putting on it really was a collaborative process um And I learned that it, it, as we know, but I got to experience it firsthand, that it's really important to have a lot of diverse voices in the room and different people coming from different perspectives, um, you know, that you're always going to get better results that way. I also learned um, through our shows and like having different people being contributing a lot of different ideas that obviously that can be challenging too, and that there needs to be some sort of like decision-making process in place. It's good to have somebody who's ultimately the decision maker, you know, that people trust in those scenarios. But yeah, I I got really into this idea that we can all create something together and and accomplish that and feel fulfilled. Um, And then when I brought that into my business life, it was sort of, I mean, it's been sort of an interesting experience in that, you know, for 
while I was working with a couple different people very, very closely. And I wanted all of their ideas on the table, but I also learned that sometimes people just want to be told what to do. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, was always trying to stoke this collaborative aspect, but then there's also certain parts of it where it's like, you do just need to be the one to say how it goes. And even if you don't know, you need to have a confidence in that and kind of go with that. And, but then also not be afraid to admit if you made a mistake down the line. So anyway, um, yeah. So something I've been thinking about is like the value of getting all perspectives, but then also this like dual thing of needing to like be strong in your own perspective, which I find to be a more challenging part of that sometimes, especially because I've been in partnership with somebody, you know, um, in business for so long, like she and I would always be like the co-leaders of something. (laughs) And now it's just like, Jen and I feel so much responsibility in the things that I'm putting out there and the things that I'm saying now in a way that I didn't really necessarily feel before. So what else am I thinking about with leadership recently? I guess there's also the question of legacy, I think is something that's been on my mind too. Um, I mentioned to you off air that I have a child now (laughs) and I, this has definitely brought to mind a lot of questions for me of like, what do I want to leave in the world with this thing that I'm creating? What audiences do I want to be reaching? I, it's been sort of interesting. We sort of by default fell, fell into teaching in a corporate world. Like we were going into companies and I really do believe that a lot of changes that can happen in society at large sometimes start in more corporate settings because there's more of an openness to try new things and these initiatives are started and we start to get buzzwords around things and then suddenly everybody's talking about those things. And I think that's awesome. So I have felt empowered in the sort of things I'm teaching to be going into corporate environments and like spreading messages about like listening to one another better and how to be more authentic um, and all of these things. I feel really, really good about that. But over time, I am wondering if I would like to expand my audience beyond just corporate settings. So I don't know, this is just a larger question that I have for myself in terms of like, yeah, how I would like to affect change and like the leadership position that I'm in now. And I do think about kids a lot and starting younger with some of these messages too, but um, TBD on how that plays into my business (laughs) over the years. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that stood out to me there is diversity alone is, is something that's really important. And what naturally emerges from diversity or from being surrounded by people who look differently than you, think differently than you, feel differently than you, you're probably being exposed to different ideas or beliefs that are, if not disaligned with who you are or the way that you think, are they're foreign to you. And I'm wondering if there's been any, as you hear the, uh, the sounds of New York City in yeah. the background, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything that you've, as you've exposed yourself to more diverse groups, if there's anything you've about faced on, new beliefs that you've adopted, or the ways that you've viewed the world that have completely 180'd in, in some way. One thing for me is actually, this is like a little bit meta, but one of the things is I've always believed that I should surround myself with like-minded people. And mm. so one, one of the things that's actually shifted for me is that I am, I'm welcoming in people who I know have completely different viewpoints from me, or that I, on a surface level, might disagree with a lot of things that they stand for. So like, 
I've always identified as a Democrat mm -hmm. and all the things that go along with that. And we're getting into murky water here, but I'll just, <laughs> I'll just go for it. There yeah. are, there are some people that I really like and respect who are Republicans and who do not be, do not believe, if not, don't believe in vaccinations have not gotten the COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. That alone in the past would have been enough for me to be like, I, I don't need that person in my life. I'm just going to, I'm going to stonewall them. They are an idiot. I, like we, there's, there's no common ground. And I have, there's some reason in their mind that they're doing that. And something that has shown up for me is like, this is an interesting way to look at it, but I, I don't know if you're familiar with Byron Katie's The Work, but I will, I'll take a belief of mine and then I can ask it, is it true? Can I be certain it's true? The third question is, how do I react when I believe that thought to be true? And who would I be without that thought? Mm. And what that really does is it, it, hel it helps me stop worrying so much about being right. So yeah. I, I let go of, you know, what my, if it's true that, you know, vaccines a good thing and everyone should get vaccinated. If I'm holding very firmly to that belief when I'm in conversation with someone who disagrees with me, there's there's nothing there's there's no good that can emerge there. Right. So right. one of the things that I have done is really let go of being right about anything. And I'm you know, I, I stumble and fall all the time on that. But in the back of my mind, I know someone who disagrees with me, they have a perfectly good reason in their mind why they're doing that. I want to be curious about them. Yeah, I think over the years, I've begin, and it probably as a result of, you know, teaching um, some topics where we really do get into the value of having different voices in the room, I've become a lot more open to having different voices around as well. And I think I've always been a person who does second guess myself quite a bit. So I haven't been one to like, say something and, and want to be right immediately. But I, if I'm honest with myself, I was doing that in my head anyway, being like, you know, thinking about like, oh, well, I know better than them sort of thing. Uh -huh. But over the years, um, I've sort of softened on this a bit. And I think it can be seen in my, I mean, I'm currently like um, engaged to somebody who has very different political, not very different. I said that like it was just like we're worlds apart, but we have different <laughs> political views. <laughs> um, and, or, um, you know, different, just we, we come from different sorts of experiences and have different beliefs and um, we're able to have conversations about it. And um, also something I've really learned too, is that we have to question things sometimes or like flag them in conversations and it can come from a place of like love and understanding and empathy. And it doesn't have to be like what you said was wrong, but it can be like, like the power of a really good question. Like, Hey, what did you mean by that thing that you just said or, or letting them know like how it personally affected you if it is really different than like where you come from. So um, yeah, um, it's really, it's really difficult not to get caught up in this. Like, I want to be right. I know better than you. I'm going to one up you sort of thing. And I think we all fall into that, um, sometimes. So yeah, I mean, something else I've learned too, in the last few years is as much as I teach what I teach, I do want to be surrounded by people who make me feel comfortable and who are like me. And, uh, that I could see when I took a close look, 
it was sort of reflected in the people I was working with for a couple of years. And like, really like, you know, they were physically like me. We came from similar like educational backgrounds and I didn't think that I was doing that, but I actually was. And it was pretty clear. Uh And it was because, um, you know, I felt like that would be like easier somehow that we'd be like on the same page. And yeah, I don't know. I had to take a little bit of a harder look at that. And definitely when I'm thinking about the company moving ahead and who I want to be working with, it's like, I just, I want to bring in different kinds of somebody who's not like me. And of course, like I said earlier, it's going to be a little bit more challenging for all of us probably, (laughs) but ultimately it's going to create like a much, much more, um, just a better, better company. So, yeah. (laughs) And this wasn't explicitly spoken about, but it certainly is. It came up in my mind a few times as you were talking about leadership, Mm -hmm. the the power of listening and really Mm. uh, hearing each other. And one of the things that you and I did together was, I don't know if you remember this, but we, we worked on listening through, I think it was called the Meisner technique. And uh, that was an, an improv way of listening to each other and, and reacting to each other's body language. And mm-hmm. I, I would be curious to hear how listening, uh, how, you, how you develop that as a skill mm-hmm. and what, the, what listening means to you in your leadership style. Sure. So there's some really like basic things about listening to keep in mind, which is being able to, first of all, train our attention to be on another person and not be extremely divided much harder these days. And definitely when I'm dealing with people in remote working environments, like with your computers and multiple tabs open, it is so hard to be a good listener. So being able to train your attention to be on one thing and really take in the words that are being said is really big. And then, you know, we talked about the need to be right. So another big thing with listening is just deferring that judgment that we have of what the person is saying as best we can. We might feel like we already know where the conversation is headed. So we want to finish their sentence, for example, or we might feel like we know something better than they know it. Um, But just keep in mind if that's where you're coming from and don't judge yourself for it. We all do it, but see if you can take a step back and try to take in the words at face value. So you're really hearing them really well. So those are just some really simple, like beginner, like things that we should all be doing with listening. Um, But then we get more into the realm of what is sometimes called empathetic listening, where it's not just the words that are being spoken that we're taking in, but it's the full message that somebody's conveying through everything that they're doing through the tone of their voice and their body language and, you know, the context that the whole thing is in, that you are able then to really take in what somebody is saying to you, what you're feeling coming from them, and that you can acknowledge that, that you can, um, you know, say it back in your own words, that you can state out loud a feeling that you might be getting from them. Like, I can imagine how that would be really frustrating for you, for example, like to actually be able to say those feelings out loud is a really big one. Um, and also to ask them really great probing questions is, you know, I'm sure with a podcast, you have to like attune yourself to this all the time, but really to take in what had just happened to be able to frame a question that's going to advance the conversation even more to get further perspective from them. It's a, um, it's a skill that really needs to be learned. So I would say, you know, empathetic listening, sort of this higher form is not easy. And it's something that we all should be working on. I am sort of, you know, trying to keep an arsenal of open-ended questions nearby for myself when it comes to like my own 
leadership and, and dealing with my business every day. So, um, you know, when I'm talking with a client, for example, that I'm able to draw upon those because in the moment, sometimes it's hard to think of a good open-ended question. So, yeah, so I'm, I, I am trying to get better at the question asking. And, and also it can be scary to acknowledge like feelings that come up in the moment for sure, because what if you're wrong? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I find that if you are wrong, people tend to just tell you how they do actually feel. So it's better to say it than to not say it if you're sensing something in a conversation that needs to be surfaced. And that's definitely something I'm working on too. Mm. One of the areas that I would want to continue on is just, uh, do you have any open-ended questions present that are, you know, you, you actually said in your answer that, uh, <laughs> you're doing better at trying to have the list present and not like, I, I don't want to catch you off guard with this question, but do you have yeah. any open, open-ended questions that have been helpful? Yeah, I, for me, I try to keep it really simple, but it would be something along the lines of how are you feeling about that? Because again, feelings can be really scary, <laughs> um, but that's something that I would avoid in the past. So the feeling question is a really good one for me. Um, and then just something simple along the lines of, you know, can you say more about how you see things? Um, or maybe something along the lines of like, do you have another way of seeing this that I'm not seeing right now by chance? I yeah. find to be a really good one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the second part is just guessing someone's feeling. It, it's very awkward at, at first, maybe, but uh, I have found too, like this happens mostly in a coaching conversation with, uh, with a client or if I'm the client where usually you're at least in the, the stratosphere, you're in, you're in the ballpark. And the fact that you took an empathic guess, I'll call it, is enough that the, it creates the connection anyway for them to say, all right, this person like seeks to understand me and mm-hmm. Uh, they'll, then they can, you're, you're giving them the impetus to, you know, put you closer to what the actual route is. So there's, uh, that is something that I've been working on too, which it's, it's very challenging, but it, it creates your connection has been something that's very top of mind, uh, especially the last two years. And I, I think that's one of the best ways to connect. I think it also creates a sense of relief for a person. A lot of times, at least for me personally, when I've experienced that, when, somebody has mentioned something about a feeling or given me an opening to express something where not much has to be said, but for them to acknowledge that they might sense that, you know, that must've been a really tiresome conversation for you. Not this conversation, obviously, but like (laughs) something else they're referencing. Yeah. That I just, yeah, you feel, you feel seen and you're able to sort of let a bit of that feeling go if it's a quote unquote negative feeling. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. You mentioned modeling vulnerability as one of the the edges for yourself, and I would be curious to hear more about what what modeling vulnerability means in in your words. Mm. So definitely, it has to do with not needing to appear. I talked about my past at the beginning and a need to be liked from a time that I was younger. So I think part of it for me, a big part of it, is being able to express how I'm feeling in a situation. I don't want to say asserting myself, but sometimes it could be, but it could be like setting a boundary or saying something that feels important to me that maybe I know isn't necessarily going to make the other person feel the best way in the world. (laughs) Not that it's against them, but that it might be like challenging to them in some way. And I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I've always 
I always thought, oh, I'm such an empathetic person. I, you know, whatever that sounds so high and mighty. And I, it was high and mighty for a long time where I thought like, I, I was like, oh, I kind of have an idea of how other people are feeling. But then I, what I realized a little bit ago, years ago, is that I was sort of um, assuming that I knew how people felt when I didn't actually know how they felt at all. <laughs> so I'm trying to remind myself these days too, that I can't control other people's responses or reactions to me. I don't actually know how they feel. And the best gift that I can give is to be open and honest about what I'm going through and what I need and how I feel. And um, that's sort of like how you form deeper relationships with people. It seems to, to be so, yeah, I guess, I don't know. This is all a very roundabout way of saying maybe not being so concerned with the response that I'm going to get and more just focus on the communication aspect of it and being as clear and as open and honest as I need to be. Ooh, that, that really resonated with me. Yeah. The same, I I've had a similar narrative my whole life of, uh, that combination of actually being empathetic, but also then making lots of assumptions about what other people are feeling instead of, right. in my words, would be instead of getting curious about their experience, it would, I would already have it sized up and judged and yeah, determined, predetermined in my head. Mm-hmm. And that in a weird way, my empathy was combined with the righteousness was blocking me off from having a real connection with the other person. That's so, I think righteousness is such that, that really encompasses that for me too, that I realized, yeah, I was kind of taking like a holier than thou, like, oh, I know how you're going to respond sort of yeah. <laughs> to it. And that, yeah, that was blocking connection for sure. Well, there's just a couple more things as, as we're pushing on time here that I wanted to go over with you. And they're, they're more rapid fire questions. They don't need to be short answers, but I just had a, a couple, a couple of things I wanted to go through with you. So one is you already mentioned uh, a book that you found helpful, but were there any, any resources that you would point people to if it, whether it's books, it could be courses you've taken, mm-hmm. favorite, even favorite movies, shows, any, anything that comes to mind for you? Sure. Um, I read a book again, 2011 was like a super pivotal year for me. It's when, um, I started blog logs and, and a bunch of things changed in my life. And at that time, I read the book that I mentioned earlier, Finding Inner Courage. But I also read um, this book by Anne Bogart, uh, the director. It's called And Then You Act. And the subtitle is Making Art in an Unpredictable World. Um, and it really is about a creative collaboration process. Um, and how you can make things that are creative and artful that really matter in the time that we live in. It was written like post 9-11. And yeah, I just found that book to be really um, interesting. There was one concept she talked about in it that I remember stuck with me at the time and I still carry with me today. It was, uh, the concept was uh, called Festina Lente, which means uh, making haste slowly. Mm. And it was just the idea that we can capitalize like on every moment that we have to to have a full life, but we need to keep moving ahead and working towards the things that are important to us. And that was really important to me because I found for a while that I was really tripping myself up just a lot. So it was, you know, needing to move ahead, but kind of taking our time with that. And then just something else I I would mention is uh, I think anyone can benefit from some acting training, but I would say for me, an even bigger influence in my life was um, vocal training. And like singing, essentially, like I, um, from the time I was 12 or 13 years old, I, I would um, have singing lessons. 
and we would sing classical music. So you got to really learn things in different languages. Um, but we'd also do Broadway and more like expressive kinds of like show tuny things. Um, and you know, you talked about the breath earlier, Mike, and I found that this was like such an important way. It's almost like akin to like meditation or something like that to learn how to use my breath and to feel in touch with my body and to feel like my breath and my body and my voice were connected. Um, singing and, and doing vocal work has always been inc an incredibly grounding experience for me. And I would just, I think it can make our lives better in so many different ways. Um, so just one technique that I worked on that I'll mention for a little while is the Linklater technique. Um, and you can look it up, it's Kristen Linklater. Um, and that's all about sort of freeing up your natural voice in your body. So you're not holding tension and you're allowing it to get out in its most expressive way possible. But that's more of something an actor might explore. Um, but you could also just like sing. I, I, you know, I would recommend to anybody to try singing on their own. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So the next one is, this is one that I borrow from Brene Brown. What's an ordinary everyday moment that you are grateful for? For me right now, it really would be the time that I get to spend with my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's just waking up in the morning, waking her up. We usually wake up right around the same time. It's so special to have like a little human being in the world. And I guess maybe like that moment of seeing her have fresh eyes on the day, she's usually in a good mood in the morning. Um, and, you know, for me to have fresh eyes on the day and for us to be experiencing that together is just, I don't know, that's probably my happiest time of every day. Beautiful. My last question to you is, you know, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. I want to know in your terms for, for Jen, what constitutes a meaningful life? For me, what constitutes a meaningful life is to, has been now in my 30s, <laughs> late 30s, to, I've really, to redefine my idea of what it means to be successful and thinking about, you know, what I'm doing for other people's approval versus what I'm doing for myself, sort of the reckoning that I've been having meaningful life is really for me to revel in the smaller moments and to be doing less things, but to be doing them really, really well. And, you know, to be making an impact positively in other people's lives. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, I, I will link everything that we discussed, resources, books, uh, where people can connect with you in the show notes. And I wanted to wrap up by saying, you know, when I, when I reached out to you on LinkedIn to have you on the podcast, I mentioned this briefly, but mm -hmm. when, and, and I actually mentioned it a tiny bit in this conversation already, but I reached out to you at a very vulnerable uh, time for me. And I had all sorts of reservations about stepping into becoming a public speaker and yeah, I just wanted to express my uh, gratitude for you and being one of, one of the first guides that uh, helped me take that scary, the first step a lot of times is the scariest one. And in a lot of ways, this was my first step in personal development. I, I had, when I reached out to you, I, it's not an exaggeration where it was, it was overwhelming just to think about getting on that phone call. Uh -huh. And now here I am interviewing you on a podcast that could be 
shared with any number of people and I'm slowly but surely becoming like a very comfortable public facing person. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, that journey started with, with reaching out to you. And so, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Thank you for um, verbalizing all of that because yeah, that, that's just so special to hear. So thank you for saying that. And I feel so excited to be a part. I just was reflecting, you know, going into this, that the fact that I get to, to be on a, your podcast is so cool that, you know, this has literally never happened before that, you know, somebody that I've coached now has started this type of business and now is taking on a more public facing role and that they've invited me to be a part of it. And for me, that feels like kind of not full circle, but you know what I mean? Like it's really, it feels really good for me too. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. That's really awesome to hear. So Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I really admire your work and I'm really glad that we crossed paths and we're able to reconnect in, in this platform. And uh, yeah, to, to all of my listeners, whenever you're listening, have a good rest of your day or night and take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well and keep living with purpose. Peace.